welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Hey, welcome to the Healing Addiction Facebook page. We are um, live from very, very chilly, but bright Minneapolis. We had a, a big snowfall that um, has left the world covered in a nice new sparkly layer of snow. So I am Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and I am here with psychiatrist Dr. Henry Emmons, who is a local practitioner, a psychiatrist who is really focused on helping to support mental health and well-being through a variety of both traditional and sort of natural interventions. So I'm super excited to have him here and, and chatting with me about some strategies to help support mental health and wellness and even provides support for folks who are working through some addictions through a variety of means that maybe we don't necessarily talk about so often within the psychiatry psychology field. So thanks for joining me, Dr. Emmons. Oh, thanks for having me, Sherry. Happy to be here. So how long have you been in practice? Can I just know a little bit about your backstory? Absolutely. I've been in practice, which is hard to believe, for 30 years. Fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> Great accomplishment. <laughs> Actually, yeah. And I still love what I'm doing. Yeah, good. And one of the things that you focused on is this sort of field of natural mental health. What, is, what does that mean? What, what do you mean when you use sort of the word natural in this context? Right. So I, I use different words, natural, integrative. I used to use the word holistic. And really what it means to me is trying to do anything that we can to help a person feel better, recover from whatever they're dealing with, stay healthy, prevent recurrences. And, and then trying to use the most natural, the least invasive options first and and then if those aren't effective move on to other things but but it's always trying to trying to help people's own inner resources their physiology their brain chemistry but also their heart and, and mind to be as functional and normal as possible with as little downside or you know side effects and unhelpful parts of the interventions as possible I like that term, least invasive. Sounds like easiest on this on the system, on the body. Do the sort of easiest thing first, and then build up if you need to. Yeah, right, right. Okay. So I have had the pleasure of working with a variety of amazing, really, really thoughtful, wonderful psychiatrists over the course of my career. But I do think that occasionally psychiatry gets a little bit of a bad rap for. You know, I go in, I have my, my med check for 15 minutes, and I walk out with, with a, a Prozac or a Zoloft prescription. And that's kind of the go-to for many 
kind of initial or early phase psychiatric visits. And of course, those are medications that have been very, very helpful to lots of people. So I don't, I'm not disparaging that in any way, but I'm so curious about the way that you work because it sounds like you are asking different kinds of questions and often reaching some different kinds of solutions that then might be most typical for a psychiatric visit. Right. You know, I, I used to have a practice something like you described and, and I didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't care for it personally. I didn't think it really was helping my patients as much as they needed. And it just wasn't very satisfying. So I, I do know what you're referring to there. And I think a lot of us in the field have allowed that to happen, even if it wasn't what we originally wanted as a way to practice. But but I think, because I am trained in Western medicine and Western psychiatry, I do think in those terms a little bit. I do think about the brain chemistry and healthy function and physiology, but but I've really tried to expand my repertoire so that I have a better understanding of how to support those things through other means besides just medication. And so, you know, starting, for example, with, with diet and and doing as much as we can to get brain chemistry right through diet. And then if that's not enough, uh, which it it isn't, of course, for a lot of people, then we'll move on to natural therapies. So some you know vitamins, nutrients, supplements, herbs. And then if that's not enough, we might move on to medication. But using all of these things in conjunction with each other because you know people are really so much more complex than just their serotonin levels or their dopamine levels. But in order to really try to understand what would be the best kind of diet or what would be the most effective supplements or even most effective medications, I have learned over the years to try to, to, to ask questions that help me pinpoint to some degree what are the imbalances, what are the underlying problems, and how can we best address them efficiently so that people aren't wasting too much time or spending too much money or just suffering too much. Not making it overly complicated. Exactly. So uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about diet. I feel like diet just in general is a really complicated topic for, for a lot of Americans, maybe a lot of people in that I think some of us have a pretty dysregulated relationship with food, but then there's this whole industry that's like this diet, that diet, this thing, that thing. And I think it can be really hard to parse what is just the most basic, sound, scientifically informed, helpful strategy? Yeah, what are your kind of go-tos? Are there certain things that you tend to identify as problematic eating in terms of really driving mental health challenges? Yeah, let me, let me just say how, how strongly I agree with you about how unnecessarily complicated nutrition has, seems to have become. You know, it's just so confusing for people to know what's right because you get completely opposite recommendations, you know, from reputable sources. And so. Right. No gluten, high fat, like, you know, keto, not, I, I, you could sort of parse your food in any way. One day you're eating only dairy. And then the next day it's like, no, we never eat dairy. And it's just very confusing. I think. Exactly. I think that there are two aspects of the relationship between nutrition and and depression that that really really do make a difference and it pays to learn what you 
can about this because these two things are really big factors. And one of them is this whole issue of inflammation. You know, a lot of people came to some understanding about systemic or body-wide inflammation because of heart problems, heart disease. I think we've understood for quite a while that, that there's a connection between this inflammation going on in your body and having heart problems. But it's been a little more recent that we've realized, well, of course, the brain is affected by this too. And I think a, a lot of the good science that's come out in recent years points to inflammation in the brain as being one of the prime causes of depression. And so there are some nutritional approaches that I think are really, really helpful at reducing inflammation. And one of them is really simple, and that is to boost your levels of omega-3 fat. So getting more, because they calm inflammation to some degree. So getting more you know, fresh seafood or, or having, you know, taking as a supplement high quality omega-3, and then you know, having more nuts and seeds and olive oil, those are supportive of the omega-3 system. So inflammation is one thing, um, and that's one way to approach it. But probably an even bigger issue with regard to inflammation has to do with how you process, how your body processes sugars, basically. And so it, it, it gets into that, you know, what kind of diet do I choose? And do I go paleo or modified paleo or what have you? And I think that for most people in our culture in this day and age, we eat too many simple carbs. And that puts a lot of pressure on the insulin system that balances blood sugar. And that in turn puts a lot of pressure on this inflammation problem. So I think one of the most sound recommendations in all the nutritional literature, and you'll see this over and over just using different terms, and that is not to eat too much simple carbs. And simple carbs are their bread, their things where, where sugar is sort of one of the primary ingredients. Yeah, it's, it's really anything that gets turned really easily into blood sugar. Okay. So sugar is you know, one obvious thing, and any kind of sugar substitute really is doing something similar. Even the non-calorie sugar substitutes, we now believe that they send the brain the same signal as if it was sugar, and so it's probably not helping. But then also any food that has had its fiber taken away is going to be kind of easily turned into glucose. And so, you know, you just don't want to eat many processed foods, white breads, white flours, white pastas, those kind of things. You want, you want to eat carbs with fiber still attached to them. So does that mean whole wheat? That means grainy? Yep. So if you do eat, you know, gluten or grains, um, it means having whole grains, things that haven't been, haven't had the fiber taken away or been processed too much. It also means eating root vegetables, beans and legumes. I think probably one of the very best things that we could do in diet is just to eat more fiber because it, it, keeps, it keeps your blood sugar more stable and that reduces inflammation. So diet-related strategy number one is to really be mindful of inflammation and the kinds of foods that drive inflammation, things that are heavy in the sugar, and then also to include as many omega-3 fatty acids as possible to help sort of offset that inflammation. Right. 
And strategy number two is a little more, maybe a little more complex to get your mind around, but this relates to the, the three different subtypes of problems with depression or anxiety that I talk about in my books. And so very quickly, I think that the majority of people suffering from depression have what I would call an anxious depression. That is related at least partly to a problem with the serotonin system. So they would want to eat a diet that is really supportive of the serotonin system. And that would be eating things like, like we just talked about, the whole grains, the root vegetables, things that keep your blood sugars steady so that the amino acid tryptophan can be easily processed into serotonin. So basically you want to keep you, you don't want to eat too much protein for that diet. So a paleo diet would probably not be good if you're really struggling with, you know, lots of anxiety, insomnia and so forth. You do need some good healthy proteins, but, but focusing a little more on the healthy carbs and healthy fat. The second pattern is uh, what I call an agitated mood or state of, of overexcitation or agitation and irritability is the most common way that that manifests. But a lot of people who have this would probably identify themselves just as being anxious. But if you really dig in and ask the right questions, you realize, no, you're really more more irritable or you know, restless or jittery or agitated. And for that, for that person, they really don't want to eat much in the way of protein because protein is just too stimulating for them. So for them, a little higher fat, really good, healthy fats that are kind of soothing for brain function, like like avocados and avocados. Yep. And if you eat it, then, you know, having some kind of um, coconut oil or, and then more more of the nuts and seeds and olive oils. But again, just not a, a ton of protein. And then the third type is what I call the sluggish or lethargic pattern. And this is where a paleo diet might be really great. Um, these are people who tend to be a little bit heavier, tend to be kind of slowed down, if their sleep isn't impaired, they'll often sleep too much or have trouble getting up in the morning. It's what a lot of us in Minnesota experience in the winter. Our, our sort of pseudo-hibernative state. <laughs> exactly. And, and in that case, having that more stimulating diet you know, with, with higher protein and lower carbs could be really, really good and effective. So the, the second principle, like I said, it's a little more complex, but it's, to, it's really learning your own mind-body type what pattern gets you into trouble and then eating according to that. I, I appreciate that nuance because I do, again, kind of continuing my rant on the, the, the health food sort of diet industry. It, it's really easy for people to get very dogmatic about like, this is the thing that everyone should be doing. And I think the still relatively straightforward and simple way of matching how you are monitoring your diet and how you're thinking about the integration between your food and your mental health is, is fairly individualized. We have different kinds of bodies, different kinds of mood profiles. And so this simple system of just having these three subtypes that have different implications for diet, I think is, is really helpful. And you know, this is something I, I drew partly through my clinical experience and partly through learning. Early in my career, I learned about Ayurveda. And so I was going to say, this sounds very yoga to me. <laughs> it is really aligned with that. And so if you, if you're familiar with that or your listeners are familiar, it is, it is a way of recognizing that we are not all built the same, that people are, are wired differently. They have different needs. Um, they have different temperaments. 
and eating and living according to your knowing and, and kind of accepting your own mind body type, it can be super helpful, really, really helpful. So, you know, I've, I've benefited a lot from that myself in my own life, but I also try to work, you know, really hard to let my patients understand what's going on for them and how they can best keep themselves in balance because the world is, is stressful. It's difficult. Life is, has always been that way. It's always going to be, I think. And so we have to be adaptable. We have to be resilient. And I think the best way to do that is to, to learn more about yourself and your own nature and try to live as best you can according to that. And there's an, there's an element of acceptance in there too, sort of, of identifying these are, these are the strengths, but also the liabilities that I'm coming with to my life or to whatever stressful situations I find myself in in my life. And I think sort of telling the truth about that, knowing that helps us be able to predict these are the ways that I'm going to go squirrely when I'm confronted with another stressor or with something that's, that's difficult. And then when you have a game plan that's based on your particular, your particular vulnerability, then it, you know, you're so much further along in helping yourself be able to cope with challenges. So in addition to the, the diet piece, which you know, we've talked about, you also have done some work in sort of thinking about supplements or uh, less invasive ways to help reset or support body chemistry that, that don't necessarily involve medication. And again, not that medication is a rule out. We just want to sort of pursue the, the least invasive thing first. But tell me a little bit about that part of your work. Yeah, there was a time when I, when I really became frustrated with the practice of psychiatry as it had evolved. I, there was a time where I said to myself, I am never going to prescribe medications again. I'm going to become a naturopathic psychiatrist. I'm done with that. And I realized pretty quickly that that didn't make sense either. But what I've learned since then is how to, you know, how to really think about supporting people's kind of natural mind-body state with these natural means and sometimes using medication, but doing it in a way that it has helps the medications work better, helps people be on the least dose that they need to and still feel good. You know, so it's, it's not necessarily one or the other. I do a lot of mixing and kind of balancing of things, but, but doing it in a way that the, that is safe and where the, the natural therapies are supportive of the medications if they're on them. I also see a lot of patients who are hoping to get off of medication you know, altogether. And that's a worthy goal. And if we can do it, it's great. But, but sometimes all the best we can do is to reduce it so they have less of a burden of side effects, but also feel better. And the medication works better. So there, you know, the earlier, again, earlier in my career, and actually this still happens sometimes, I would have patients come in to my office literally with a grocery bag full of supplements. There might be 15 to 20 bottles of supplements because people were feeling so desperate to feel better. And, you know, they go to a, a store or now they read online about this or that product. And, of course, you know, we're all looking for something that isn't too hard on our part and that helps us feel better. So what I've tried to do is to, to be both more 
nuanced, you know, a little more sophisticated about it, but also to simplify things for my, my patients so that they're not taking, you know, bottles full or hands full of, of supplements. Well, it's kind of another area of overwhelm, right? You Sort of similar to the, the diet industry, there's so much sort of buzz about do this thing or do that thing, or this is the thing that's really going to make the difference. And I think, you know, even just walking through Whole Foods or the co-op, there are 20 different products that claim to support anti-anxiety, anti-stress, or to improve mood. And I think it can be super overwhelming as a consumer to know like what is actually legitimate, what is too much, what goes well together. Yeah, I think that your uh, your desire to make that simpler is certainly very, very helpful. Yeah, so one of the things I've done is, you know, over the years, really partly through experimenting and partly through, you know, the science getting better and really trying to understand what natural therapies actually have some evidence behind them and, and you know, what's the science teaching us about how they work. So, I, you know, I've been able to to find a few really good products that I think are are really helpful for people because I see it all the time in my my practice, my clinical work. And as you know, I've, I've recently started a an online company called NaturalMentalHealth.com where we we try to make this accessible to everybody. And so, for a, depression, for example, we might have just just two or three products that people would would take, but one or two of them would be products that combine maybe, you know, 15 or 20 nutrients into one pill so people aren't having to take a whole bunch of different things. So I don't have to get all 15 things from all exactly. those. <laughs> exactly. But, but just, you know, the, a lot of those 15 or so things might be micronutrients, things that you don't need a whole big amount of. You just need a little bit in order to make serotonin, for example. Yeah, so it sounds like combining your clinical experience with the research that you've you've done and read have found some ways to really synthesize or to bring together a number of elements that seem to have the maximum impact. Right. I'm just going to add that you know we 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 haven't talked much about this yet, but there are there are certain lifestyle practices or you know principles that work together with these things, whether you're using diet or supplements or medications, but you know, focusing on some of the basics in ways that are really effective and that really fit with your mind-body type, I find that also can be incredibly helpful. Like sleep, movement, those kinds of basics. Sleep, movement, yep. Um, really focusing on your daily schedule. You know, how do you, um, how do you structure your days? Because those different, those three different types that I've talked about might have very different needs in terms of how they're approaching their day-to-day life. And it makes so much sense, right? To, to, to think about, we've kind of artificially parsed out the conversation about mental health or even addiction into this thing that lives in, in this part of our bodies, which is of course, now we even understand much more from a scientific perspective, completely inaccurate. Like we can't just sort of parse one part of our lives to, to one body part, but rather we're these very, very integrated systems. And so thinking about how sleep and nutrition and just moving our bodies shapes our ability to, to sort of regulate our mood and to, to cope with challenges is it, it seems like it shouldn't be kind of a cutting edge conversation, but yet it, it kind of is, which I sort of scratched my head about. But. Well, I think, I think one of the reasons for that is that our 
collective lifestyle has changed so dramatically in the last 70 to 75 years that we don't do those things automatically anymore. Mm. And, you know, our ancestors, they had no choice. They had to move their bodies throughout the day. And now we do have a choice, and a lot of us are not making Choose not to. <laughs> so, you know, then, then we got to figure out, okay, what's the smartest way for me to move my body? What's the most efficient way? Because most people are not going to go back to living the way that our ancestors did. Right. I'd rather not have to sort of chop down a tree and stack wood or, or carry water from the, from the well or the lake. <laughs> right. Every day. <laughs> I'll take my modern convenience. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it, it almost works against us, though. I mean, not only do we have a choice, but it's easier to be sedentary. It, the inertia is pulling us towards the direction of a sedentary life, as certainly for many of the folks that I work with who are entrepreneurs, many of whom work largely online. And so their, their bread and butter is sitting right in front of the computer and staring at the screen and there's very little incentive to get up and move and much more incentive to stay planted in front of the screen so that you can stay tuned to what's, what's going on in the cyber world. Yeah, that's right. Could we talk a little bit about maybe how some of your work would be applied specifically to folks who are struggling with, with addictive behaviors, whether that's substance abuse or other kinds of compulsive kind of addictive behaviors? Yeah, so one of the the things that I have learned and just observed so often is that for many people who are caught up in addiction, there's a pattern of overactivity going on in their brain that is very hard for them to shut down. So any addict would recognize this, that there is this kind of obsessional aspect about it where they kind of can't stop thinking about whatever it is that they're addicted to, the pressure builds up, you know, they, they, they have these loops of thoughts and, and activities that they have a hard time breaking out of. And then they, they finally get whatever it is that they're craving and they feel better for a brief period of time. And then the whole you know, process starts over again. There's a lot of things going on inside in that scenario that most people who are caught up in it are completely unaware of. But it, it is very similar to that pattern that I refer to as the agitated state, you know, the overactivated. I, you know, with mood, it often comes out as irritability. But with other, uh, other behaviors, it might show up more as compulsivity, addiction, repetitiveness, you know, getting into these loops that you can't break yourself out of. But oftentimes, the nature of thinking then is very ruminative. It's, it's just kind of looping through the same messages again and again and again. And the way that I have come to see that is that it is a very much a state of overactivity in these brain circuits. And so one aspect of trying to help people break out of that is to, to find ways to slow down this activity to kind of calm, if you will, or soothe some of the, the agitated nature of the mind. You know, one thing we haven't talked much about yet, but I use this a lot in my work, and that is the practice of mindfulness. I've been, been teaching mindfulness for most of the 30 years I've been a psychiatrist, and I find it helpful for virtually all of these patterns, but I think especially for somebody who's caught 
up in, a, in some kind of addictive behavior. Because if you can bring awareness to it, especially earlier on in the, that process, the earlier you can notice what's happening and you're starting to get revved up and, and moving in that direction, the better chance you have of, of kind of breaking the cycle before it takes you over. Being able to self-soothe, being able to notice, being able to effectively turn towards your emotions that you might be trying to avoid through the addiction, you know, being able to face whatever's in front of you that needs to be faced or addressed, knowing that you won't do it perfectly, but you can do it. Um, those kind of skills, if you will, can be super helpful. But I often find that people need, before they can learn those skills, before they can successfully practice mindfulness or yoga or something along those lines, they've got to have just a little more peace of mind. They've got to be able to calm that down a little bit. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's got to be a little bit. And that's where I think there are some natural approaches and even some medications that can be incredibly helpful. That can sort of soothe those neural networks enough to allow for the practice of building those other capacities. Exactly. The practice of mindfulness, the sort of work of learning a new way of being in the world. But I think you know, that, that neurological or that biochemical support can make that much more possible for people. Right. And one, one aspect to that that we've already touched upon, and that is inflammation. I, I really think that there's a way in which the inflammation of the body and then this, kind of this inflammation in your life, if you will, it, that they're very analogous and they, they often go together. So if you can, you know, find out what is causing that, what can you do to soothe this physiological inflammation and also then start to soothe your behavioral inflammation, if you will? I think one of the things that I wanted to make sure I got to talk to you about, and we just have a couple minutes left, but you use the word joy a lot in your work, which I think in your, your book is called The Chemistry of Joy. And that that's not often a word that I hear other mental health practitioners throwing around. What, what's your attachment to that word? Right. Well, one, one reason that that came to me is because before writing that book, I went through a period where I was not a joyful person myself. <laughs> and it very much appealed yeah. to me, that, that whole notion. And, and I, you know, I was able to, to find it through many of the things that I've written about and will teach about. But also, I, I, I felt really early on in my career that in mental health, we are making a big mistake by focusing so much of our attention on unhappiness, joylessness. We're, we're missing out on, you know, a good, a good half, if not more, of the human experience. And, and so if, if that's what our focus is, if that's all we learn about, that's what we're going to see. And that's kind of what we're going to work with. And I, I really do believe that if people can get to some point of stability with their mood or anxiety or addiction, and then learn what it is that would help them thrive in their life, to help them really tap into something deeper and more nourishing. I think that their risks of becoming depressed or drinking again or whatever their Achilles heel is, I think it goes down dramatically. Because if you're starting from a, a place of really 
being more fully alive and thriving, it takes a lot more to get you down, back down to that state. Yeah, I think we've made the mistake of settling for the absence of symptoms. And that's kind of the definition of mental health for some in our in our world would, would be to say, you're healthy if you're not depressed or you're healthy if you're not experiencing significant anxiety. But we we don't think about the really like juicy, lovely way of being in the world, which is to be fully alive. So not only the absence of problems, but the addition of joy, the addition of delight, the addition of the capacity to really relish in the moments of your life. Right. And you know, the way I define it, joy is not the same thing as feeling happy all of the time. You know, it has more to do with tapping into life maybe in a deeper way, being able to love well, having traits like compassion, generosity, gratitude, the kind of things that really help us feel fundamentally different than when we're caught up in one of these unhealthy states. How would you think about the relationship between joy and meaning? Uh, great question. I think, I think most people who live a really full fully engaged, you know, vibrant life. One aspect of that that's always there is that they have a genuine sense of meaning and contribution. It, it, there's almost always contribution in there. It's not just about me, you know, it's about a wider context. How am I, how am I a part of something bigger than myself? And I think that, you know, it doesn't have to be any grand thing at all. You don't have to be a healer or you know, in any way notable, but to be able to to really offer something in your day-to-day interactions with people, for example, can be incredibly beautiful and meaningful. And that might be like a lovely place to leave the conversation because I think it, it kind of comes full circle in terms of thinking about how we support mental health and, and help people thrive in ways that you know, do our best to prevent depression, prevent addiction, prevent people from living in a space where they're in misery and not feeling awake to their own lives. And I think you've you've developed this very simple, straightforward way of thinking about how do we support people in their bodies through diet, through supplements if needed, through medication if needed, so that they can can attain that level of, of joyful sort of satisfaction. Yeah, and then, you know, how can we help people go further, go beyond that, go from just reaching their baseline back to their baseline to changing their baseline, raising it, becoming bigger in some way. So for folks who want to know more about your work, um, we'll put, I'll put some links in the Facebook comments so people can find your websites. But what's the best way for people to keep track of what you're doing or if they have more curiosity about some of the the support systems that you've developed for people? Yeah, naturalmentalhealth.com. We have, we're always adding content and blogs and video blogs. And, you know, we're really trying to address not just the physical, but the heart and soul of, of uh, common mental health conditions. I mean, we're focusing really on depression, anxiety, and ADD right now because they're so common. And trying to give people these these straightforward but hopefully elegant models for how do you how do you really come out of this? And then how do you move to a, a, a really different level? Yeah, I think having the simple model is actually the thing that requires the most expertise and experience, right? 
think you're right. <laughs> can really be very clear and concise as its own ninja skill. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, Dr. Emmons, I really appreciate your time and your willingness to, to chat with me about your experience and your expertise. And I think it's, it's quite a gift to folks who are tuning in. So hopefully um, this has been a, a good conversation and I look forward to seeing um, how your work continues to, to help support people and their well-being. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.